<clears throat> All right, let's go ahead and turn over to Matthew chapter 9 this evening. Matthew chapter number 9. And we're going to be looking this evening at verses 9 through 13 as we continue our verse-by-verse exposition through the book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew chapter number 9, and we'll begin there in verse number 9 here in just a moment. This particular section deals with the calling of a man by the name of Matthew. Uh, Matthew is also known as Levi. Uh, But before we look to this text, I want to consider the question, uh, what does it mean to be called by the Lord Jesus Christ? What does it mean to be called? Uh, In this particular text, we're we're introduced to Matthew, uh, who at the time of his calling, he is a tax collector uh, for the Romans. And as he is called by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, we see that Matthew's response to the call of Jesus is immediate. Uh, There is no hesitation. Uh, There is no, I want to think about this. There is no, um, I'm not sure uh, that I want to leave behind the life uh, that I am currently living. As a matter of fact, we see a beautiful picture that the fact that Jesus comes and calls Matthew. Matthew was in no way, shape, or form uh, looking for Jesus. He was not trying to find him. He wasn't seeking after him. He wasn't saying, you know, I want to find this Jesus. It's the beauty of how Jesus calls men unto himself. And it certainly does illustrate a number of different things about the call of Christ, which is really uh, what the subject is for tonight, is thinking about uh, the call of Christ, the call to follow Christ. Uh, I truly do believe that the call of Christ uh, does include a calling to leave behind the old way of life, uh, to leave behind the old way of living. Uh, much as we read there in our scripture in Colossians 3, uh, seek those things which are above, not those things which are below. <clears throat> looking, looking for the, <clears throat> the holy things, looking for the things that are of Christ Jesus and his kingdom. Uh, we, are, uh, we are tempted in our world today uh, to, to compromise um, our commitment. And I think we, we have, sadly, a divided commitment. We're, we're half committed to the world and we're half committed to Christ. And the call of Christ really is supposed to be a, a, a full commitment to what Christ has called us to. Uh, again, I don't think many of us uh, look to ourselves and, and say, you know, I, I'm one that's half in for Christ and half out. But think about the commitment that the disciples and the apostles had following their call. Uh, Matthew, of course, follows from this point on. Uh, The Lord Jesus uses those words, follow me, and as we'll see in the text, Matthew does just that. He follows. Uh, There is no desire to preserve himself. There's no desire to say, uh, but I've got to get things in order. Uh, He is now uh, arrested with a love for God uh, that he didn't have. To be a follower of Christ truly does lead and desire obedience. Obedience to his commandments. Obedience to what God has called us to. And this is, this is done, first and foremost, our, our first calling is that call of repentance. Uh, to repent of our sins and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to commit all to him. 
We're believing in his gospel. We're believing in what Jesus Christ has accomplished. The very fact that Jesus Christ is the Savior that was sent by God. Christ is God himself. Now we might look at this story tonight and we might say, how does the calling of Matthew apply to us? And I would submit to you that it very much applies to us, even in the way in which Matthew was called. So let's look here at verse number 9 and read down through verse 13. It says, And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw what they said unto his disciples, why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? Uh, you see that question and you can almost hear the venom in the question. Why is your master eating with those horrible publicans and those sinners. You, you, you can almost see and hear the venom. But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, they that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." How is this calling today in our modern world applied to us? Well, the reality is, is that the calling to follow Christ is the same as it's always been. Uh, there is a call on the believer now, their life, to follow Christ in wholehearted commitment. Not a passive, not a covert but an overriding desire and a commitment to follow Christ, he who has saved you from your sins and he who has given you a Savior, we ought to desire to say, I want to follow with everything my life is. Now, it's extremely easy in this world to live divided, to live a divided allegiance, to be committed to a cause, to be committed to something, and I think we can be committed to things and they can be a part of our life, but it should not supersede our commitment to Christ. Our first and foremost obligation should be a commitment to Christ. Jesus Christ should be the Lord of our life. The idea that we're just to follow Christ for our salvation and then we're allowed to do whatever we want to do, I think that goes against the very narrative and the very story of the Bible. When people were called to follow, it was an intent to follow with wholehearted commitment. So this call of Christ really has a couple of different elements to it. A call to follow Christ is a call to trust Jesus Christ in all things. Christ calls, even in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, and yet that ought to be our great desire is to pursue God with every aspect of our life. To follow him. The call of Christ is a call to follow Christ. I know that sounds like I just repeated myself, but that's what it is. The call of Christ is to follow Christ. And to follow him, that's a call we must accept. We accept it because we, first of all, know that that eternal call, that effectual calling to salvation, is the only means and the only avenue of our eternal life. 
If Jesus Christ doesn't call us, if the Holy Spirit doesn't convert us, if the Spirit doesn't make us willing, we're not going after him to find him, just like Matthew wasn't going to look for Jesus when he found him. Christ came and called him. So this call of Christ is extremely important. Well, I really want to look at three main aspects of this call of Christ. And the first one is, is in verses 9 and 11. And it's just simply the heading here, the call of Christ is a sovereign call. The call of Christ is a sovereign call. Now, Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5, they have the same story that Matthew penned here in his gospel. Only in Mark, Matthew is known by the name Levi. Mark goes into a little more detail and tells us that this Matthew or Levi was the son of Alphaeus. Luke also mentions that part of the family tree, if you will, and also calls him Levi. He also in Luke adds to the fact that Levi or Matthew was a publican and adds this phrase and says that Levi or Matthew left all, rose up, and followed him. You'll notice Matthew simply says, and he arose and followed him. But it is clear to see that Matthew is also Levi, and almost every interpreter, every theologian, every preacher, most that you'll read will agree it's the same guy. Matthew and Levi are the same man. Three different narratives, the same call of Christ. It is a sovereign call. Matthew, of course, the writer of this gospel. And we see that Matthew uh, was most known as a publican. Now, as a publican, uh, therefore, we understand that within the reality of what a publican is, there was some pride to him. There would have been some... Uh, some uh, uh, something that to him that uh, it would have seen that he might have wanted to resist this call, but we don't see that he does. Uh, we also know that uh, he was seated there at a place called the receipt of custom. Uh, he was what's known as a custom house officer, probably working in the port of Capernaum. That's where he was. He collected land tax. Now, just like in our day, the tax collectors were not the most popular people in the community. Uh, and a lot of times, these people that were the tax collectors, they were corrupt. Uh, they were people that were, were robbing people. They were, turning, uh, they were taking things that were not theirs. They were, they were overcharging, undercharging. They were doing all sorts of things uh, to, to try to beat the system. But it was not a calling to be a tax collector. It was not something that you set out to be. Uh, you didn't grow up and say, you know, when I get older, I want to be a tax collector. I want to be like the Matthews of the world and sit at that custom house and collect land tax. Uh, there were very few people in that particular vocation who would have been considered honest people. Uh, you would not walk into a place and announce that you were a tax collector and everybody would say, well, that's an honest man right there. Most likely, they would say that's a dishonest, corrupt individual. Now, one of the, one of the, 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 the beauties of the call of Christ is you understand that Christ is calling someone who is unworthy on his own merits. He's unworthy on his, his own reputation. Yet all three of these writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
refer that when Christ called him, he immediately arose and he immediately followed. Of course, Matthew becomes and is one of the 12 apostles. So this publican, this officer under the Roman government, government to collect this revenue, these taxes, his name would have been a, a repulsive name to people. People would not have liked this guy. This is not somebody that you would have said, Matthew or Levi, whichever name he would have gone by, somebody that was looked up to with respect. People often say, it seems that Christ seems to call the most unworthy. And I would agree with that. I would agree that Christ certainly did call the most unworthy. He called the most unworthy when he called you and I as well. And it's easy for us to get caught up in the fact that Matthew was such a corrupt, dishonest guy. But you realize in our own sin and our own depravity, uh, there is nothing in us that makes us any better than Matthew was. It's not as if we look at this and we're repulsed by Matthew being a corrupt, dishonest tax collector. You know, but for the grace of God, you and I would still be just as corrupt and just as, and just as deceitful and, and just as wicked if it wasn't for the grace of God. What I believe this call of Christ towards Matthew does is it certainly does magnify God's grace, doesn't it? It magnifies the grace that God would actually call a man like Matthew. And he's not, he's not ashamed that we have a record now of Christ calling this man by the name of Matthew. You notice again, it says, Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and he saith unto him, follow me. Very simple words, but a commandment. Again, we're not finding Matthew saying, I'm looking for Jesus to come to the table and call me. I'm looking for Jesus to come and call me to greater and bigger things. We have to make the assumption that at this moment, Matthew was not even bent on even looking for Christ. He wasn't looking for grace. He wasn't looking for God. And yet it was Christ that came looking for him and found him. Really, it's the beauty of the effectual calling of God. How did Matthew respond to this call? We see that Christ spoke first, and we see the principle that it is God who has in fact chosen us, not us choosing him. So Matthew, we see, arises and follows. Christ's word carried an effectual power to it. Now, this was not something Matthew said, I need to go home and pray on this. I need to go home and talk to people about it. The effectual working power of Christ's call led Matthew to arise and follow. Christ simply said, follow me. Christ's word carried a power. Think about what Matthew was leaving. Matthew was leaving his employment and he was wholeheartedly committed to following after Christ. You know, some people say, well, the, you know, the, it, it, that's not really a practical application. It's a very practical application. This was Matthew's livelihood. This was the way that he earned a living. This is the way that he, he made his, his money. And yet when Christ called him, he left it all behind. And he said, I'm, I'm done. That's it. And yet we see that almost immediately 
It came to pass, verse 10, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Notice, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. More publicans, more sinners. Jesus is seated with them. We continue to see this sovereign call. We continue to see uh, how this story unfolds. Now, in Luke's narrative, he makes mention that Levi specifically makes this great feast in his own house. Matthew doesn't mention this. But this feast is taking place, this sitting at meat in the house is taking place in Matthew's house. Just, just not too long earlier, Matthew was seated at the custom of receipt. He's collecting taxes for the corrupt Roman government. Now he's hosting a feast for the Lord and other publicans and sinners in his own home. A great many publicans and others. Mark simply says in his account that there were many and they followed him. Certainly, we see that a change has taken place in Matthew. Something has taken place where Matthew understands the love of Christ that's been demonstrated towards him. He prepares a feast, and Christ is one of his first guests at his table. How those other ones, did Matthew invite these other sinners to come in? Did Christ invite these sinners? We just see in Matthew's account that as he sat at meat, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Undoubtedly, some of these publicans were probably people, again, I don't want to read too much into the narrative, were probably people Matthew knew. He probably knew these people. He knew that their reputations, he knew who they were. And yet now, grace that has arrested him has now led him to have them seated at his table to hear a teaching that they've probably never heard before. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now Mark, in Mark chapter 2 and in Luke chapter 5, says that the Pharisees not only saw it, but murmured. Now Matthew's account in verse 11 says, and when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples. It's interesting that Mark and Luke use the phrase, they murmured, they complained. Uh, these Pharisees were looking for a perfect entrance into a way that they could complain against Christ. They have already been filled with malice regarding who he is and what he's about. They're trying to find a way to question his motives. They're trying to find a way to question what he's doing. And that's what leads to the first question. They want to accuse him of doing something wrong. And they ask the question, why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? As if Jesus is doing something wrong. The publicans were, of course, an order of people who were known both for their empl employment, but also the faulty way in which they managed it. Uh, they were also, the publicans were also hated by the Jews. They were disliked greatly. Uh, they, were, they were reckoned to be, by the Pharisees, the worst kind of sinners. That's what leads to that narrative when they're in the temple and the publican and the Pharisee and the Pharisee looks across and he says, I'm thankful I'm not like that publican. 
That's not just some random thought. That's how the Jews felt about the publicans. They were the notorious of all. Here's these, these Pharisees, these religious uh, snobs, if you will, saying these filthy publicans who collect taxes for the wicked Roman government. I'm so glad I'm not like them. And the Pharisee simply says, I fast, I tithe, I do all these things. And how does that publican respond? He, put, he beats upon his chest and he cannot even look to God. He's, he's ashamed by the fact that he's a sinner. And yet, Jesus now, this is what leads to the rage. The Pharisees are enraged that Jesus would even think about keeping company with a filthy publican. Folks, it really helps us to understand the culture in which Jesus was ministering and what the culture was actually saying. When, when we see these phrases like Jesus sitting with publicans and sitting with sinners, it's easy for us to sometimes just simply kind of gloss over the reality of how disgusted the Pharisees were by what they saw. Now, this was not some, hey, why is he, see, why is he eating with them? I mean, this was repulsive to them. That's how they felt. They looked upon Jesus as if he was committing the most heinous of sins. They were expressing a great anger towards Christ for this. This was something that truly uh, was demonstrating what their heart really was about. So we do see that the call of Christ is a sovereign call. Beginning there in verses 12 and the first part of verse 13, Jesus specifically mentions that the call of Christ is a call to the sick. The call of Christ is a call to the sick. Notice Jesus' response. But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. Now the whole would be a reference to the Pharisee, the sick is going to be a reference to the publican because the publican, Matthew specifically, is going to realize what his need was. The Pharisee is the one that considered himself to be whole. Christ said to those that are whole, that's the Pharisees, the Pharisees accounted themselves as something, somebody who does not need a physician. They would say, our own righteousness is all that we need. We're not sick. We don't have any struggles. We don't have any uh, wickedness in us because they were convinced that they were the spiritual per picture of righteousness. You know it's the Pharisees who were the most irritated at Christ's acts of mercy, right? They became irritated when Christ would, would act and do works of mercy, even on the Sabbath day, those works of necessity, those times when they were helping someone in need, and yet they were irritated by Christ. They were irritated that he would do such a thing. Well, the reality is, is these acts of mercy in which Jesus was doing, his highest act of mercy is what he does for the sin-sick soul. The highest act of mercy Christ has ever demonstrated to you and I is saving our sinful, sick soul. I truly, I truly don't think we understand how sick sin 
really makes us. We're not talking about just a common ailment. We're talking about the very thing, sin, that condemns us, that keeps us and separates us from the very presence of God. And yet these Pharisees truly believed we don't need this physician. We don't need to be healed. We have our righteousness. We have our tithing. We have our alms. And Jesus had told them they have their reward. They have the applause of men, but they're still sick. Understanding that it appears here that what Jesus is calling out very clearly is that it is only the person who recognizes their need, who recognizes their sinful condition, that they are in fact the ones that are sick. There is nothing worse than a pharisaical idea or a principle that says, I am in no need of help and I am in no need of healing. It is the epitome of what self-righteousness will do. The self-righteous says, I'm not a sinner. The self-righteous says, even if I am a sinner, I have enough righteousness, enough good works to offset my badness. And at the end, my own self-righteousness, my own righteous works will be enough to get me to God. And yet it is the publican who in that other account in the gospel as the Pharisee and the, and the publican are standing there together. It is the publican that recognized his sinful condition and begged God to have mercy on him. Begged God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Who is it that Christ really comes to save? Who is it who he really calls to himself? The sick. Not the self-righteous. Not the ones that are in no need of a physician. Mark and Luke both give the same answer that Jesus does, except they leave out the words that Matthew mentions, go ye and learn what that meaneth. It's an interesting phrase that Matthew uses that Luke and Mark do not use. Go ye and learn what that means. Now, why is this important that Jesus is telling this to the Pharisees? Because the most learned people, the most learned scripture people were the Pharisees. Do you know that that was also another insult to the Pharisaical self-righteousness to tell them, you need to go and learn what this means because he's clearly identifying you don't even know what this means and yet you're supposed to be the religious expert. Folks, listen, it's not enough to just simply be acquainted with God. It's not simply enough to just have an idea of who God is. We have to understand what it is that we need to be healed from. The Pharisees were the religious experts of the day, but they had no idea what this meant. They had no idea that what Jesus was telling them, that's why he said, go and learn what this means. 
Now this is a, when he goes on, he says, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. He is quoting Hosea chapter number six, verse number six, which says, for I desired mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. What Hosea was writing about in the Old Testament was that the Lord desired mercy before sacrifice. And still today, he desires mercy before sacrifice. He desires the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. The Pharisees were known as the most outwardly religious people there were. They were doing acts outwardly. They were doing all sorts of sacrifice, but they lacked mercy. God Himself says He desires mercy above sacrifice. These Pharisees that Jesus is replying to consider some of the ideas of who these Pharisees were. Uh, They were, in fact, an entire generation that their entire religious understanding, their entire approach to God was based upon rituals, traditions, and sacrifices. Those things were the things that they believed got them acceptability with God. Generations of Pharisees believed these things were the way to God. Maybe even more sadly and more directly, they justified themselves. They determined what justification was. Over in Luke chapter 16, verse 15, the Bible talks about this this idea behind the Pharisees. It says in Luke 16, verse 14, And the Pharisees also who were covetous heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said unto them, this is Jesus' words, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. You notice he says, you justified yourself. They truly believed that they were in no need of repentance. And yet that's the very thing that Jesus is going to put his finger on again with the Pharisees by telling them, What you need is not justification of yourself, but repentance. Jesus goes on to say, For I am not come to call the righteous. The righteous are those who arrogantly believe themselves to be righteous. They truly falsely consider themselves to be righteous in the sight of God. Lest we think that this idea is an old Bible times mentality, there are many, many people in this world who sadly and falsely believe that they and their righteousness will stand before a holy, perfect God. And it's wrapped up in sacrifice, traditions, and rituals. It's wrapped up in the things that they believe 
is getting them access to God, but it lacks the one thing that is necessary, repentance. Jesus puts his finger right on the reality of what's happening here when he shows that the, what is missing is, I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Folks, the very gospel itself is a call to repentance. It is a call to have a change of mind and a change of direction. You notice, Jesus did not come to the table where Matthew was seated and say to Matthew, Matthew, if you'll pray this prayer after me, I'll let you go on about your day. He called him, he arose, he followed. There was no, this is all, I, I just want you to get your eternity settled and then you can go back to your life. A call of Christ is not just a call for temporary now, it's a call for eternity. It is a full, wholehearted commitment to Christ. Folks, I'm afraid that's what's missing in a lot of our gospel presentations and of a lot of our evangelism is we're, we're just trying to deal with making people say a prayer or, or do something and we're leaving out the reality that this should be a call to make Christ the Lord of your life. There's been a great debate over the last 15 years about whether or not making the Lord the Lord of your life is part of the gospel call or not. I can't understand what the argument is about. I really can't understand who's, who's on the other side that says Christ isn't the Lord of your life. Are you truly called by Christ if there's no desire to make him the Lord of your life? Again, do we believe that the call of Christ is an effectual call or do we believe that this call is just simply something that we have to think about, something we have to consider? Or is Christ's call really an effectual, powerful call? What is Jesus saying by the call of Christ calling the sick? Is thirdly, he is saying that the call of Christ calls the sinner, not the self-righteous. The righteous are simply those who are swelled in their opinion of their own righteousness. But what are sinners? Sinners that are called to repentance are those who've been made aware, who have a sense of their need of repentance. Realizing that the first needful thing is repentance. I saw, I think it was within the last week or so, I saw someone's attempt at a gospel presentation and it was a page long. Not a single time was the word repentance ever mentioned. Not a single time was there a mention of a repentance of sin. I noticed a lot of acknowledgement. I saw a lot of words of accept, but I did not see the word repent of your sins. Can a gospel really contain no repentance? Can salvation really have no repentance? Not if we're talking about scriptural repentance. Not if we're talking about the scriptural gospel. There is no salvation without repentance. 
We understand that this repentance, this gospel call is a call to repentance. It's a call to have a change of mind and I would say a change in our direction. Christ's greatest business, his greatest purpose has come, of course, to glorify the Father, but his greatest business lies with the greatest sinners, those who are aware, who've been made aware of their sin, not those who are self-righteous and swelled up in their own opinion of themselves and say, I don't need the physician's help. That's exactly who these Pharisees were. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul wrote those, these words, Christ came into the world to save sinners. And remember, he pointed to himself. He especially came to save the chief of sinners. He was talking about himself. The Pharisee of Pharisees was the Apostle Paul at one time. The Hebrew of the Hebrews was the Apostle Paul at one time. Listen, the more aware we become of our own sinfulness the more welcome Christ will be not only in our life, but to become the Lord of our life. Christ finds himself unwanted in most of the places that he goes. Remember when we looked at, the, the, at Gadara, and remember as they stood on the, the whole city at the end of chapter 8, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they besought him that he would depart out of their coast. They didn't come out there to say, hey, Jesus, please stay. They went out there to say, Jesus, we're begging you, we're praying that you would just leave. This call of Christ is a call to the sinner. Christ did not come with an expectation of succeeding among the self-righteous. He came to call sinners. He came to call those who were in need of a physician, those who were in need of help. We often find ourselves asking the question, when Christ came seeking me, was I even looking in his direction? Was I looking for him at all when Christ called me? I would say, no, I was content in my own self. I was content in my own direction. I was content in my own way. And yet, just like Christ did with Matthew, it wasn't until Christ came and called me that there was an even acknowledgement that I was a sinner. But how thankful am I? How thankful you should be that Christ called us with an effectual calling, converted us, saved our soul, cured our greatest need, which was a need of our sins being forgiven. I think it's safe to say that after Christ came to Matthew, Matthew welcomed Christ wherever he was. But I would ask ourselves tonight the question, have we, are we truly wholeheartedly committed to the cause of Christ? Or are we double-minded? To be double-minded is to be unstable in all of our ways. To say, yes, Christ is a part of my life. Christ has a certain ownership of a part of me, but I'm not wholeheartedly committed to him. Yet we have to wonder if Christ calls us, 
there ought to be a full commitment to him. And I hope we can say that tonight, that by the call of Christ on our life, we understand what he called us from, what he called us out of, what he's delivered us from. He's delivered us from an eternity separated from him forever. How much of our life is too much to give to him? Truly, everything we have, we ought to be seeking him. Seek those things which are above, not those things which are below. Seek him first. And I trust that you know the call of Christ and the call of Christ has been upon your life. And I hope you have a desire to truly follow him. Let's go ahead and we'll be dismissed in prayer this evening. I appreciate you being here. Let's go ahead and stand. I'll pray and we'll dismiss us. If I can be a help to you this evening, please don't hesitate to come and speak with me. We'll look forward to seeing you um, on uh, this coming Sunday. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time that we've had in your word. And Lord, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for the effectual calling of Jesus Christ to sinners. Lord, I praise you for making our own self-righteousness, making us aware of it and its unworthiness and how it has no merit to it at all. But Lord, I pray that we would be challenged tonight to stop and to think and to consider our commitment to you, our desire to walk according to your precepts, to be obedient to your commands. Lord, I pray that you would guide us and direct us and help us, Lord, to uh, point out those things in our life that we're holding on to, those things that we uh, just will not let go of. But may we rejoice in our call to salvation. May we rejoice that Jesus Christ came and he chose us. We had no inclination to call upon him. We had no desire to find him. We had no desire to look for him. And yet he called us unto himself. Your word promises that all that the Father has given to Christ, none will fail to come unto him. And we rejoice in that truth. Father, again, thank you for allowing us the privilege of being here tonight. And Lord, we look forward to when these doors are open again at this meeting house where we can gather again as a body of believers. We thank you. We praise you for all these things. And it's in Christ's name I pray and ask these things. Amen. May the Lord bless you. Thank you for being here tonight.